about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose us to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. This is the word of God. Thanks. <clears throat> thanks so much, Thomas. And thanks, um, Beck, for praying and leading us. Uh, my mother lives most of the time in Alice Springs, and uh, it's uh, not been an easy time. Um, we, let's pray again as we think about that. It, it's, a, it's, a sh- it's a short reading, but a dense one. Um, I'll be also referring to some other parts of James before, which I'll put on the screen, but if you want to look up the passage in a Bible uh, or on your phone, that could also be a good thing. Uh, Let's pray again. Uh, Lord, please, again, would you show us yourself and your majesty uh, and lead us to prayer. For Christ's sake, amen. Um, I once heard somebody say that the difference between a therapist and a pastor is that a therapist asks people about sex and a pastor asks people about prayer. Now, my wife's a therapist and uh, she and all the other counsellors in the room, we've got a psychiatrist here, uh, you know, they'll be pretty unimpressed, she is pretty unimpressed with that. Um, It's an oversimplification and not a very good one. But it is onto something, though, by, by saying that asking about prayer is at the heart of the work of a pastor. Last year, I had the real joy of preparing a bunch of people for um, baptism and confirmation. And before they were confirmed, I talked to each person individually. I had a little interview um, in the week before, and I asked them just a couple of questions. And one of those questions was, do you pray? Do you pray? Uh, Because prayer is just a, a deeply kind of critical aspect of the Christian life. It is one of the places where a living faith makes itself known. And so I wonder if it's worth, you know, you just thinking, do, do you pray? Do I pray? Uh, and bringing that to what we're going to look at this evening. Now, I don't mean to oversimplify. I'm not wanting us to put all our attention on one particular, you know, model of prayer or anything as if, you know, if you didn't get up at 5 a.m. and pray for an hour every day this week, you know, are you even a Christian? Not doing that. Um, I just mean to draw our attention to the importance of prayer, the importance of prayer for the Christian life. There's a place in the letter of First Peter where the apostle who wrote the letter calls, he says to his readers, do this, so do something, and then he says, so that nothing may hinder your prayers. So that nothing may hinder your prayers. Really interesting phrase. It suggests that there is actually a problem It's something worth worrying about, something worth at least paying attention to, 
if there are things in the way of your prayers, things making it kind of harder to pray, hindering your prayers. Well, last week, if you were here, we began a sermon series on prayer. And we began by thinking not so much about prayer itself, but about the one who hears prayer. We were reminded that when we pray, we come before the throne of the High and Holy One, awesome in majesty, yet also full, utterly full of grace and mercy. And we began this way because the aim of this series is not to um, you know, go through all the most important passages on prayer or do an overview of what the Bible teaches about prayer. I mean, they're worthy aims. We could do those series, but we're not doing that. Instead, what we're doing is just looking at some moments in the Bible that we hope will help us think well about prayer and actually perhaps grow in prayer. And that's why this week we're turning our attention to a passage from the letter of James that on the surface is not about prayer at all. Um, But I'm convinced that this part of God's word can help us grow in and be energised even for prayer. Because what it aims to do What this passage aims to do is to prevent a misunderstanding about God and his ways with us that I think is one of the biggest obstacles to prayer. James tells us, did you notice, not to be deceived. He says, don't be deceived. And the deception that he's talking about is one of the things that most hinders prayer. Okay, well, let's have a look at this little passage from James Um, What I'm going to do is I'm going to first take us through the passage as a whole, and then I'm going to draw out some implications for us. So that's the structure. The outline in your uh, uh, service sheets is actually a little bit misleading. It's kind of the response section is going to go on a bit longer. But don't worry, the sermon's not too long, I think. Maybe it is. We'll see. James 1. Let's have a look at this passage first. Don't be deceived. That's where he starts, verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Now, to understand this, it's helpful to understand the context of this passage. So the first section of the letter of James, if you go back and have a read of it, it's actually, it's all about perseverance in faith, keeping going in faith. James is aware that his readers will face, are facing and will face various challenges. He calls them different, he calls them trials of many kinds, And what they need to do, he says, is to persevere. Here's verse 12. Blessed is the one, this is just a few verses before our our passage. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to them, to those who love him. And just before our passage, he continues this theme by talking about temptation. He calls his readers not to blame God when they face temptation, but to understand that temptation comes actually from within themselves. Here's what he writes from verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Why? For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. There you go. If anybody ever says, but God can do anything, you say, well, he can't be tempted. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, 
gives birth to death. Now, this is a whole other sermon, this passage. We could dwell on this for ages. There's a whole lot there to reflect on about the nature of desire, among other things. But for now, I just want us to notice that this is the context for James telling his readers in our passage, don't be deceived. And it shows us that what he's interested in here is something very practical and pastoral. He wants his readers to avoid a mistake that will stop them persevering, keeping on in faith, that will get in the way of their walk in faith. And this mistake has to do with the way we think about God. What James wants us to avoid is the idea that God is in any way involved with evil or that what he gives us is anything other than good. And so this is what he says next, verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Now, it sounds like James's point here is just that everything good comes from God. And I, I think James, actually, he would have agreed with that. I'm, I'm, sh I'm sure he believed that. But I actually think the main thing James wants to say is a little bit of a different emphasis to that. He is saying that more that the only things that come from God are good. It, it's almost like the emphasis is different. He says, don't be deceived. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Or, or even... Don't be deceived, what comes from above is only good and perfect gifts. And the reason is, he says, that's the kind of God God is. That is who God is. God is unchangeably, inexhaustibly the giver of good. He is the father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Um, any astronomers here? Are there any astronomers? It would be cool if we had an astronomer in the congregation. No. Any amateur astronomers? One, as well as fishing. Lots of hobbies. Okay, any fans of astronomy? Anybody ever looked at the sky? All right, a few people, yeah. Okay, so this is your verse, astronomy people, if there are any. Right? This is your verse because in the original Greek text, all the main terms here have to do with astronomical phenomenon. It's not obvious in the English. Um, but the heavenly lights is just the lights, or, or really it just means the stars. And the last phrase, who does not change like shifting shadows, that's actually denser and more interesting in the original. Other English versions, if you have a look at them, bring this out. But literally, it's, it's something like, with whom there is no variation or darkening from transition or from change. And the actual terms used are astronomical. That is, they're words used to describe variations in the sky, the sun, the stars. So what James is doing here is saying something about God by comparing him to the stars and, and the very slight ways in which things in the sky change. That's why the, the, the translation, who doesn't change like shifting shadows, I think it's, a, it's not exactly right, because shifting shadows makes you think shadows that are changing quite quickly. 
But I think James's interest here is actually to say, no, God doesn't even change like those very, very slow changes that you can observe when you look at the sky for a really long time. Now, it doesn't matter that James didn't know things about astronomy that we know, like the fact that stars eventually explode and die. Um, the stars and the sun, in, in our experience, they are simply the most constant, unwavering lights that we know. I mean, have any of you ever noticed the sun getting a bit older? You know, when you looked at it today, you didn't think, oh, gee, it's not looking so good. It, they're very constant, right, the stars and the sun to us. And James is saying, but God is the one who made them. He is, in a sense, their father. And his light is never diminished or darkened. No shadow ever crosses his surface. It's very like something the Apostle John says in another place. This is the message we have heard. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And I actually love the way the old King James Version translates this, ver this verse from James. It says, God is the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Shadow of turning, a beautiful phrase, I think. James wants us to hear and to, to grasp the perfect constancy of God in his goodness the unwavering, unflickering light of God's goodness. God is simply good, never diminished, never darkened, no shadow of uncertainty or, incons or inconsistency, no shade of unreliability ever enters in. When you look at the stars, James says, be reminded of their maker, their father, the constant giver. And that truth, he goes on to say now, ought to shape the way we understand one thing especially, the gift that he has given in calling us to faith in Jesus. Look how James goes on in verse 18. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Do you see the logic of James as what God has given us in calling us to Christian faith as something good, as a good and perfect gift? Because it's from him, the perfect giver. God, he says, God chose to give us birth through the word of truth. That, by the way, is that's what it means to become a Christian. Um, however it happens, whether slowly over years or quickly in a moment, this is what happens. We are born afresh, born anew by hearing the message of the gospel. And God chose to give you this, James says, for a purpose. And the purpose is that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Uh, that's an agricultural or kind of botanical image that's used quite often in the Bible. Um, the first fruits, right, are the, the first fruit on a tree or a plant that kind of signal that there is more to come. Um, and James uses it in a really interesting way here. He speaks of a first fruits of, of all he created. And what this does is it anchors Christian faith in a very big picture 
God gave you new birth, James is saying. He did what he did in your life so that you might be the beginning of a harvest, a coming to fruit, a fulfillment of the whole creation. I think this image is meant to bring with it a profound sense that there is a lot more to come. Because the first fruit, they can see, it can seem small and unimpressive and a bit weird when there's just like one orange on the tree. What's that, what's that going What's going on? What's that doing there? It looks odd. But it is a sign that there is more on the way. And James, uh, Jesus actually told a parable that, that made the same point. Do you know that parable? He said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts very small. It ends up as a very big tree. Now, I, I suspect James wanted this to be an encouragement, especially to Jewish Christians. His letter is clearly written with Jewish Christians in mind. Uh, and because at the time of writing, to be a Jew who believed in the Messiah Jesus, that was a tough thing at the time. Not many Jews were getting on board. And many were starting to resist this new Messiah movement strongly. But this is what God has chosen to do, says James, for you to be born anew as a kind of promise, a kind of sign, a kind of first fruits, the beginning of a great and beautiful purpose. And because God chose this, he's saying, because God chose it, you know that it's good. This is his main point. You see, God chose to do this, and who is God? He is the constant giver, the father of lights, And so if he chose this, it is a good gift. Don't be deceived about that even for a moment, he says. Don't doubt it. Press on. Persevere. You won't regret. Okay. Well, how should we respond to this word today? How could God's, how could James's words here, God's words through James, help us correct us and shape our faith. Well, let me say three things. Firstly, hear the call here to believe in the constant goodness of God, to believe in it. Because God does not always seem good. It can seem like God is not good. The circumstances of our lives, the struggles we face, they can seem to put the constancy and goodness of God in grave doubt, it can seem like his face has darkened. His faithfulness has come unstuck. But he is still, in fact, the same God, the good and perfect giver, and we are called to trust that. The moon, just to use an astronomical image, fitting, I think, from this text, The moon does not always seem round. Indeed, mostly, it doesn't seem round. It's only rarely that you can catch it and see it as a full moon, a circle. Mostly, its roundness is hidden. But is the moon round? Yes, it is. Do you know, the moon is always round is the title of a children's book by the brother of a good friend of mine. Uh, Jonathan Gibson. Johnny wrote this book 
after their daughter was stillborn at 39 weeks. And he used this image, that the moon is always round, to help his three-year-old son endure his grief. Whatever shape it looks, the moon is always round. And just so, God is always good. This we are called to believe. But how do we know? How do we know this is true? How do we know James is right here to say this about God and it's not just an imaginary ideal, something, you know, a nice thought? Well, at the end of Johnny's book, actually, in the little children's catechism he suggests there, there's the same question. How do you know that, good, that God is always good? And the answer given there is because of Good Friday. And that is the answer. That is the answer. Good Friday, when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died in our place for our sins to bring us forgiveness. That is the final, perfect, incontestable proof of the love and goodness of God. It's the reason James can say this with such confidence, because God showed himself there once and for all, the good and perfect giver, the father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. The moon does not always look round, but it is. God does not always seem good, but he is. This we are called to confess and to believe even when it doesn't seem like it. And that will lead us to receive his gifts with a new thankfulness. This is the second thing I want to say about us today and our response. And above all, God calls us to receive one gift in particular with thankfulness, the gift of the path of Christian faith. Now, for some of us, I, I hope for many of us, being a Christian is a straightforwardly and joyfully good thing. For others, though, being a Christian feels a bit more complex and, honestly, a bit ambiguous. Why is that? Well, there are a range of reasons. For some people, it has something to do with the shape their life has taken. Things just haven't quite turned out the way you expected in your life. And it can make you feel like the path of Christian faith has maybe been a bit of a mistake, or at least a bit unhelpful. For others, it's really about what, what it has cost, perhaps in relationships, or with family, or at work. For others, it's mainly intellectual. It's about the difficulty of believing certain things and wrestling with difficult questions. For others, it's because the failures and stupidity and nastiness of other Christians or of the church have made it very, very hard for Christian faith to feel like just simply a good thing. Now, all these experiences and struggles are real and they all deserve care and careful thought. But do you know, James was writing to people just the same. People who had faced and were facing trials of many kinds, who were tempted, who doubted. 
And he calls his readers, and by doing so, God calls us. Don't be deceived. Yes, there are trials, but God is not the one who puts evils in our lives, but good. And so what he has chosen to give us, we can have confidence in as a good gift. And what he's chosen is to give us birth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Friends, don't lose sight of what God has given you in making you a Christian. And if you're not a Christian, A, welcome. B, this is what's on offer. It's, it's, it's pretty fantastic. Birth. Birth into forgiveness and life and fellowship with God, and freedom from slavery to sin, freedom to serve God, even to please God, through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And also, this is a gift of a life of incredible dignity, of being the first fruits of creation's healing and perfection, The first fruit always look a bit weird, ungainly, out of place. But they aren't. They're the future. That first orange on the tree, that is the future. And everything else is going to have to adjust around it in time. And that is you, Christian. That is you. That is your dignity in this world, a sign of a future of unimaginable glory. So, brothers and sisters, receive this gift. Receive the gift of your faith, your calling to obedience with thankfulness and persevere. As James puts it back in verse 4, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Or again, we saw this at the beginning. Let me read it again, verse 12. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. James is not just talking there when he says trials about, you know, people being arrested and burnt at the stake. He's talking about the trials you face. The difficulty you have persevering. The challenges, the sense of loss and frustration. And he says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. And there is before you a crown of life. Can you imagine Jesus putting a crown on your head? So don't become resentful, bitter, and don't despair. Press on with thankfulness. This is a good splendid gift you have been given. Which leads me finally and very briefly back to prayer. Let me encourage you to respond to this word today by praying. Let the knowledge that God is this God, the constant giver. One of the main things I'm hoping with these these passages we're looking at is just to kind of expand your names for God the Holy One, the Father of lights. 
Let the confidence that this is God fill you with confidence to come, to ask, seek, knock. Let it give you the confidence to come to Him and confess your difficulty in believing, your disappointments and anger at your losses, your struggles with your trials and doubts, and ask for His help. Because He is this one, the good and perfect giver who showed his love in Jesus and who chose to set you on this path. And he chose that not just to see if you'd manage it as a kind of experiment or as a kind of sick joke, not because he was careless or cruel, but in perfect love and goodness. So come to him, friends, and trusting these things, pray. Let me lead us in doing just that. Oh Lord, our loving Father, we praise you as the God of all goodness, the perfect light who does not change, constantly, endlessly, the God of mercy, patience, and love. We praise you that you have proved this to us in the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus, and we pray that confident of this, we would turn to you and open our hearts and minds and mouths to you in praise and in prayer for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.